the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. And before I just blaze right past that, that's a good place to kind of stay in touch because sometimes we'll share articles and stories there that we don't talk about on the show or we'll post them there first to kind of get people's responses to see if we want to talk about it on the show. So if you want to kind of help influence or inform what we do or don't talk about, if you maybe even want to get mentioned on the show, I would highly encourage you to go to Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. You'll see our two ugly faces right there. My apologies in advance for having to look at that. I'm sure you could mask that out somehow with a <laughs> Photoshop or a Post-it note. Yeah. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at Common Good Talk or 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. And we've mentioned this a ton of times, but Brian and I are both pastors. So sometimes, in particular, we're drawn to stories about churches or about ministries or about pastors. And uh, here's one from Christianity Today. And here's the headline. Tithing over text is now a multi-billion dollar industry. That's right. Billion with mm-hmm. a B. What's going on here, Brian, from? Yeah, it's uh, organizations like PushPay or Tithely or other things. Uh, the, the gist of this article is that they're really helping churches increase their giving, uh, but they're also making a lot of money off of it, too, because they're providing a, a, uh, a service. So PushPay, right. uh, a, a tech company that last year made $98.4 million processing mobile giving for churches. And uh, the gist of the article is... Uh, so it's everything like companies like PushPay, Tithely, Easy Tithe, Secure Give. They let members tap their way to a tithe through smartphone apps, text messages, websites, or kiosks uh, at churches. Right? This is the way we live right now. Uh, I don't know. You probably are. I doubt you're writing a lot of personal checks for your uh, ComEd bill and your mortgage. And this I'm not and that. entirely sure where my checkbook is. See, that's exactly <laughs> it. And so a lot of churches, especially smaller churches, churches... Uh, they, they tend to be behind on things. And so what a lot of churches are, have still, you know, expected their people to give when the offering plate passes, give a check, give cash, whatever else. And, um, now there's this rise of these companies that are saying, Hey, we can do it a better way. We can get your people hopefully tithing the way they're doing it, the way they're paying their bills now and the way they're doing that. And it's working, right? There's been, in, they're, they're claiming at least an increased giving, uh, it says digital tithing companies boast trends and testimonies of congregations where giving went up 30%, 50%, and more than doubled after adding their options. One reason they work so well, churches avoid the summer slump since recurring transfers continue to process even when people uh, aren't in worship. And so uh, it said PushPay found users give $17 digitally for every $10 in the plate and so on and so forth. Uh, the question becomes, I think, before us that Christianity Today is trying to say is these companies are providing a great service to churches. 
Yeah. Uh, but how do we feel about a couple different issues? How do we feel about the fact of these companies really profiting a lot of money uh, off of uh, giving in churches? Uh, I don't know what you guys do at community, but at our church, we had a discussion about do we let people give on credit card because there's, you know, points and this and that. And we're having to pay a larger fee. And we're like, well, of course we do. Uh, and so we allow that. But I know some churches are like, no, because of the fee that we have to pay. Oh. I think there's all these things that churches, especially smaller churches, are probably trying to wrestle with. Some of them are uh, more principled. Like, how do I feel about a company Right. Uh, having to pay these fees. And some of them are more like, gosh, if somebody gives $100 on a credit card, my fee is higher as a church that we have to pay out. Right, right. Uh, so a lot, it's gotten, it's a lot more complicated than the, hey, please write your check and put it in the offering plate. Uh, but at the same time, churches are seeing this uptick in giving. And so it, it's it's a complicated business that's going on right now that I think Christianity Today is saying uh, churches need to wrestle with this. Well, it's interesting too, because um, I remember having this digital conversation, you know, 12, 13 years ago when I, when I first was sort of entering into a lead pastor role and there being a lot of skittishness around any, yes. any sort of digital processing. And now it's almost just normative, right? Which I'm wondering what that next hurdle will be. Like, I think I talk with a lot of pastors that are very, um, they're very opposed to the idea of like kiosks actually mm-hmm. in their physical space. But I wonder if, like, 15 years from now, it's gonna. Be, can you believe we ever put up a fight about kiosks? Yep, yep. Because the digital conversation, which so Lifeway did some research, and I didn't, re- I, I didn't realize it was this low. 15% now pay through their church's website, app, or text, according to a 2018 Lifeway research survey. I thought it would be way higher than way that. Is it higher? Do you know at your church? Is it? Do you have any concept I, of I that? I do. I don't. I don't off the top of my head. So it's, this year we passed 50% for the first time. 50, no kidding. 50% digital. 50% people giving online versus physically. For I the, don't the think ours time. is that high, but it's certainly close. When I, so I actually pulled up the, uh, the survey. Another piece, by the way, this is sort of an aside. So it says uh, this, this question was, is tithing a biblical principle or a, a biblical command that still applies today? 83% said yes. Mm. Um, I actually disagree. Interesting. I don't think the New Testament speaks of tithing. I don't either. Uh, except when Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. Yep. He does speak about it then. But Paul talks about it being be generous, yep. be sacrificial, mm-hmm. be intentional, mm-hmm. be proportional, be joyful. Yep. Like, there really isn't this like hard line. I think 10% is a great place to start. Yeah, there's nothing unbiblical about it. There's no. nothing wrong, but there's nothing law about it. But even if you talk, if, even if you take the Old Testament track, like there are, the 10% there, you really add up everything, including like the temple taxes and all that. It's like 23%. Yeah. Like it's this 10% thing is interesting to me that we've kind of latched onto that. But e- either way, I expected it to be much higher than 15%, to mm. be honest. And he, Later in the article, it does say these are not just your little mom and pop churches. These are enterprise organizations, and folks running them are high-ranking executives. So it says next, it says, at that size, churches are forced to operate like a business in many ways, including speaking frankly about finances and operations. But that's a lesson that churches are starting to learn regardless of size, which for you in your environment to cross the 50% mark, is that – surprising to you or was that like a target that you guys were kind of going after neither it's been trending up so it it's has, not okay. surprising um but it was a big cover i remember a couple of years ago we didn't have online giving until five years ago maybe at our church and i remember even in that conversation it was there were some people who were really had pr- trouble with the fees or had trouble with just the concept of car- credit card giving. right right and i always tell people if you're the type of person who likes to write a check we've got one guy he writes a check 
and he he wants to do it on the first day of the month. He uh-huh. he writes a note in the memo line for himself, right. like as a reminder. Like that's awesome. We still pass the plate every Sunday. Yeah, um, we do buckets, but yeah. Oh, I, I yeah, that's you've true. been there. You've that's that. right. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, it's interesting because there is something you you don't want it to be always so simple that people are giving no thought to it. But at the same right. time. It's the way our culture works, allowing it to be regular and uh, kind of making it. Uh, so, so I think churches need to talk about money, talk about these things. But I also think online giving uh, is a no-brainer for churches. Well, and and you kind of touched on this, and I wish we had more time, maybe another another segment on another day. But the idea of I just do this, and you won't even have to think about it. I was like, I don't think that's the goal either, though. No, I think no. the the formation that happens through a regular discipline of seeing everything I have as on loan to me from God in the first place that yeah. I'm just steward well in the world. Uh, just not thinking about it is not actually growing me in Christ-likeness of generosity, of loosening my grip around my stuff. So that's another dance for me. You know, it's certainly like, you know, mine's automatically withdrawn, so I see it yep. and I get a notification. But there is something to be said about, like your friend, the guy that like physically writes a check. It is this, it's a spiritual discipline. A discipline. I, I believe that what we do with our finances is as much worship as anything. Yes. And so that discipline, that formation of saying, nope, I am writing this check. And I'm giving it to my local church, not out of obligation, but out of a cheerful heart because I believe everything I have is a gift in the first place. And I want to steward that well in the world. I think I, I would love to see churches talk about that more bluntly and yeah, more consistently rather than like, hey, we got bills to pay. You know, if I'm just a listening ear, that's like the least like, inspired maybe way. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. That's kind of on you, man. Yeah. So either way, it's a complicated discussion and one that honestly, a lot of this data is really brand new to me. And this article is up on our Facebook page. Highly encourage you to check it out. There's a lot of helpful resources kind of embedded in it. And we'd love to know what you think. Coming up next, an article I found says, finding a faith that is stronger than death or my family's rejection. That's what's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, it's Ian Simpkins here. And I remember the first time that I actually learned about Thriving Financial. I was pastoring a church in Bartlett and me and two other pastors had this dream, this idea to better care for the marriages in our communities. And so we started to dream up this conference idea. What if we actually hosted a local conference to pour into marriages and couples in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our communities? And Thrive and Financial kind of came alongside and not only like made the conference possible, but they were actually interested in partnering with us as churches, as pastors, to help people not only be wise with money, but to live more generously, which was always a value that I had and always struggled to find organizations that actually wanted to help our churches do that. And so that's actually kind of the beginning of what's been a really beautiful journey and relationship with Thrive and to actually be wise with money, to live generously, and to help other people do the same. And so if that interests you, I'd encourage you to go to Thrivent.com to learn more. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or other places. Just go ahead. If you find us somewhere that we're not supposed to be, by the way, let us know. Like, let us know. Like, yeah, <laughs> someone, that be? someone's been spray painting your show name <laughs> under overpasses throughout Chicagoland. Uh, if someone would like to do that for us, that'd be awesome. Don't say that. Incredible. That's illegal. The best. <laughs> I mean, I don't disagree, but we can't encourage them overtly, Brian. You got to kind of give it like a radio okay. wink. Radio wing. I don't know what that looks like. I'm just trying to coin phrases. I'm gonna just throwing stuff against the wall, there seeing what be, sticks. There would be something backwards about like graffitied paint that reads the common good. <laughs> there would be something backwards about that. Uh, could you call that evangelism? 
<laughs> Let's end the show right now. That was it. That's the pinnacle right there. The vandalism. That's, That's really good. <laughs> Like John 316 in a bathroom you, stall? You have totally made up. I'm sorry if this exists out there. I've never heard that, but you've totally made up a new phrase. I don't. I hope not. I don't know. Have you ever heard that before? I don't think so. While we're talking, I'm going to Google this. Yeah, this go ahead. Maybe it's in my Google. subconscious somewhere. Vandalism. All right. That, so that is really good, by oh, the way. I, I'm sure somebody else has thought of it. Um, all right. So this story is pretty heavy. Just a, just a heads up. So I want to. It's always fair, I guess, when we're talking about something heavy. To make sure everyone is aware, like what we're getting into here, and uh, it's written by Heidi Hall, and the headline is super fascinating. It says, "Finding a faith that is stronger than death or my family's rejection." Which I don't know. Have you interacted with people in your years as a pastor where it could literally cost someone their nuclear family to be a part of your church or to be uh, a part of your faith? No. The closest I would say is we've had a number of people who, uh, in leaving Catholicism. Uh, caused a a big rift within their family, but that okay. feels a little different. It was never like we're disowning you, uh, and there's always enough of the same team aspect there right. that it can get bridged. But it caused like some new hurdles in the right. relationship. Tension, I would yeah. say that. How about yourself? Oh yeah, for sure. How so? Uh, I, I think my first real exposure to it was my summer in India, and you interact with uh, people yeah, who yeah. literally have been excommunicated from their tribes and their families for following Jesus. Like some of these people would tell stories like, "Oh yeah, I haven't heard from my dad in twelve years." Like since I became a Jesus person. Wow. Yeah. Which to me was so convicting because like here in America, you could change religions 18 times in a day yep. and most people wouldn't bat an eye, unfortunately. But there they're like, oh yeah, I had to, when, when we read the words of Jesus, it says count the cost. We count the cost mm. because it's, it's intense. So either way, here, here's how the story uh, begins and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I highly encourage that you do because it's, uh, it's really powerful. It says, my mother would be surprised that I did not die alone. And that, in the end, about 25 people had volunteered to take care of me when I couldn't do that for myself anymore. It's one thing after you find out you're going to die from metastic cholera. What is that word there? Colorectal? Yeah, I think so. Metastic colorectal cancer. To ask people to bring your favorite kind of Gatorade is quite another. To ask them to stand in the place of DNA sharing family and walk through hospice with you. But that's what I had to do. At the age of 23, I turned away from the family of Jehovah's Witnesses who raised me. They had wanted me to be an Uber witness, so my family forbade me to go to college and instead raised me to be a full-time door-to-door minister who converted people to their way of thinking. And I actually succeeded with one in about 15 years of trying and to pay my bills by working menial jobs. Every meaningful connection in my life was through a local congregation of witnesses known as the Kingdom Hall. That was by design. Because my family and congregation believe that the rest of the world, and that means all government and all non-Jehovah's Witnesses religious systems is controlled by Satan and his legions. They were very insular except for when they were evangelizing. Mm. That Kingdom Hall was my world and my place in the family depended on being a witness. And, I, and she kind of goes on to talk a little bit about why she left it, but the whole story is kind of punctuated by the fact that she knows that she's going to die. Yeah, and, and just to sort of make sure everyone's aware, we learn here at the end of it that she actually did die on September 25th, 2019, at the age of 49, and this story was posted the very next day. So mm. I, I'd love to know, just at first blush, like, what does this kind of narrative do to you, just as a pastor, as a human? What experiences do you have with this? And maybe, like, what encouragement would you give to other people? Yeah, that's a lot. It's a heavy story because uh, to say everything about her life was tied up into uh, Kingdom Hall, as she says, into the Jehovah's Witness, and that it was like, 
Uh, this is not just your religion. It's your family. It's your everything. Right. And what she's going to go on to say is when she leaves it, she lost everything. And uh, I wonder um, I wonder if people ever feel the same way in churches like ours, right? Like, I don't think so. Mm. But it's worth asking and worth wondering. Uh, is one of the things is if, I, if I'm having questions, is it like, oh, oh I'm going to lose people who love me. I, I'm going to lose those relationships, I suppose. Uh, that that's something to be thought of, but this is heavy. I mean, she's like, yeah, I lost, I lost my family and my friends and my identity, my community, all because I didn't believe in this religion anymore. Which we've never, I, you know, you and I have never really been faced with anything Mm-mm. even close to this. Which I think is a really interesting case study. And again, obviously, this isn't everyone's experience, but I know that she's not alone in feeling like when I began to ask questions or when I began to actually maybe deconstruct a bit it was sort of the church people that I thought would sort of be with me through thick and thin that were the first to kind of yes. cut and run, which uh, to me is so unfortunate that in many ways, and we've seen this, you know, with the Marty Sampsons and the Joshua Harris's, a lot of their reasoning at the very least is that they didn't feel like they had like real space to doubt. And uh, what, what I think is interesting is here, here's how she ends it. She says, in my search, I left behind conditional behavior-based love and traded it for the unconditional grace shown by a true family whose bonds have nothing to do with DNA, and I'm dying grateful for that. Mm. Which is such a profoundly powerful image, especially because you know at the end of your life you're thinking back on the decisions that you made. And I don't know that she would necessarily say that all of them were great, but sort of really recounting the painful tearing that happened from not just her nuclear family or DNA family, but a church family that yeah. she expected, she thought would be linked arms with her when she faced these things, and they just weren't. And I, I think you raise a good question. How how can we be better on guard yeah. to not be churches like this in our in our own context? Absolutely, and yeah, because we probably do it without knowing, right? It's a kind of an unwitting thing, like oh, right, if you leave right. this, you leave the family. Um, she paints such a powerful picture that there were twenty five people who walked her through hospice, who were there for her in thick and thin, uh, that you know weren't her DNA, weren't her blood relatives. You know, it almost reminds me of the early church, and you've shared these stories really well about how, what was the early church most known for? It was the way they loved people who weren't Christians. It right. was the way they loved the least of these, and uh, she's kind of painting that picture a little bit, that when she needed people, uh, it wasn't her old church community that came around her. It was other people, a lot of whom were also kind of orphaned by the church right, uh, who right. had this. And so there's something to be said here, because we as churches, rightfully as Christ followers, talk all the time about loving your neighbor, about loving people unconditionally the way Jesus did. Yeah. And this is somebody here saying, like, that's what I needed like, right. and, and didn't always find it. And, and that's, that's something worth pondering as churches and as individuals. What do you say to the people? Because I sometimes hear often pastors say things like, no, that's why you cast them out of the community so that they experience the sting of not being in community. And that's what draws them back to your community. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said about that in, in Paul's words that are hard to wrestle with. But I don't I think ultimately, uh, even if you let's let's use that line of thinking, even when you cast somebody out, uh, there's still ways to love them and care for them, even though if they've been casted out of I'm using air quotes here, the community. Right. Um, and so, you know, that's open to interpretation. But I still don't think that's that's like, nope. And I'm going to hate you and you're gone. Like, I think ultimately. Right. Uh, what I see over and over in Scripture is a call to love others, uh, even when they don't love you well. That's what Jesus Maybe did. Maybe even especially when they don't love especially you well. Especially <laughs> when they don't love you well. And so 
does Paul talk about times where maybe where you cast out of the church? Uh, that's worth debating. And what does that actually look like? Uh, but I don't think that even that takes you off the hook of loving people uh, and caring people uh, in that way. Well, and it feels like when Paul says that he's, he's typically responding to people that are downright belligerent or contentious, yeah. Yeah. right? Like yeah. someone who is like legitimately exploring or asking questions, maybe deeper questions than our community is used to being asked. Right. That's the time, I think, to lean in and really say, we're going to keep loving you as Jesus loved you and maybe have hard conversations when they need to have. But, man, I read her story and thought, Lord, give me the grace yes. to continue to pastor and shepherd in a way that no one ever has to feel like that yes. uh, in any of our communities and in our churches, which, again, like you said, way, way, way easier said than done, but a, a worthwhile bullseye, I think, to kind Absolutely. of point at. Before getting too far, a vandalism yeah. is definitely already a thing. It is? <laughs> oh, well. Defacing property, usually the walls and pillars of underpasses with an evangelistic message such as, such as Jesus Saves or WWJD. Usually done in graffiti form using spray paint. Well, thanks for ending with that. I I'd never plan. heard of that, and I thought you came up with something awesome. Well, too bad. There you I go. I guess it didn't. Coming up next, one of the things we love to do here is just interview interesting people, and we are going to have an interview with Ron Beers of Tyndale House Publishers. I think that's going to be a fantastic conversation. Coming up here next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. On Twitter, at Common Good Talk. You can also call us, 312-660-2594. And if you're podcasting, first off, thank you. Second, if you like, subscribe, and review, that actually helps us. Third, if you would hit that share button, that really, really does help us out a great mm-hmm. deal. And uh, one of the things we love about the show is we just get to meet with and talk with a bunch of interesting people. And Ron Beers is no exception to that. He's a general editor for the Life Application Bible, the third edition. Ron, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, Ian Brian. It is our pleasure. One of the things we've been having guests do is to introduce themselves to the Common Good audience in whatever fashion you want, by the way. So nothing's off limits. Why don't you just introduce yourself to the Common Good family? Okay. Well, my uh, greatest claim to fame is uh, that I have seven grandchildren oh. and uh, three married children, and I just, uh, well, you know, if I could have just skipped the kids and gone right to the grandkids, <laughs> you know, <laughs> grandkids are so much fun. No, I love my kids. They're awesome. I love them. Um, but I'm the uh, the publisher at Tyndale House Publishers, uh, a large Christian publisher. I've been here for 32 years, wow. and my main job is acquiring um, our new products, uh, mostly our books, uh, but I've done a lot of work in Bibles, and um, I am on the Central Bible Translation Committee for the New Living Translation, and I've had the privilege of working on the Life Application Bible ever since, um, well, from the idea all the way up through mm-hmm. the creation of the first edition, and now we're up to the third edition. Oh, that's awesome. I'm, I'm curious. Uh, Help our our listeners understand the difference uh, between an application Bible versus a study Bible. Who should use what? Uh, why don't you help us understand that a little bit? Sure. Um, so this idea came about uh, actually many years ago when we were reading some of the more traditional study Bibles. And as we were reading the notes, it just struck us um, and struck me that there were notes on phylacteries, but there was no notes on priorities or oh, purpose. There were lots of notes on ephods, but there weren't any notes on encouragement. Mm. There were notes on wormwood, but there weren't any notes on worry. 
And so we said, wow, if the Bible is really supposed to be a blueprint for living, then it should also have a lot to say about all the issues and challenges that we face in everyday life. So what does the Bible say about that? So we started digging in, and it reminds me of that verse um, in Luke, you know, where the two disciples are walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus kind of opened up the scriptures, and then when he left, the disciples said, didn't our hearts burn within us? Well, they didn't say, wasn't that interesting, or weren't those interesting (laughs) facts? You know, they said, didn't our hearts burn within us? Well, why? So that we could be transformed into disciples of Jesus who um, lived out their salvation. Mm. So we set about um, investigating that, and uh, sure enough, the Bible has a whole lot to say. So what the Bible does is it actually takes the facts, it explains the facts, but then it takes it a step further and, and really answers the question, so what? What are we supposed to do with this? Right. And then now what? Mm-hmm. Uh, which gives some practical suggestions on how to live out this timeless principle we're reading about in the Bible. So, Ron, that's actually really close to my heart right now because you just kind of described a bit of a sermon series that we're right in the middle of, like helping people actually not just check a box or pray a prayer, but actually to be transformed into the likeness, the Christoformity that I think so often we miss. What, what in your experience... Because it says that you've, you know, written or co-written more than 30 books, and the Life Application Bible sounds like a resource for actually living some of these things out. What are some of the biggest hurdles that you've seen the church faces when it comes to actually being transformed in this way and not just sort of having an intellectual assent about something? I think that part of this, and this may be a little controversial, but, uh, you know, we all went up through the educational system, and I'm not criticizing the educational system. But we'll know that we spent a lot of time learning a lot of facts, but not really getting prepared for real life. Mm. And now some schools do it wonderfully and some colleges do it wonderfully. But I think a lot of the the um, teachers and pastors and, um, uh, and a lot of the products that have been put together are done so from that point of view. You know, let's learn all the information that we can but um, there, there isn't a lot. And part of this is just because, um, you know, it's, it's hard to apply Scripture. Everybody's experience is different. Right. Um, but I think that that's really the, the key is how do, we, how do we start with the facts, but then say, what does this really mean as we live out our faith? How can, how can, because when we are really changed from the inside out, then we can't help but spill out in acts of service and love to others. But part yeah. of it is just the lack of being trans, really truly transformed by the gospel. Yeah. Right. So being someone like yourself who has dealt in translations of Bibles and, and this work for many years, one of the questions I often get as a pastor from people is, how are Bibles translated in the first place? Why are there different translations? Mm-hmm. What would be like your uh, kind of Reader's Digest kind of answer to somebody who doesn't have any background in Bible translation? How would you explain that to them? That is a great question, and it's um, in some ways it's a very complicated one, but I'll, I'll try to answer it in 30 seconds or less. <laughs> uh, so there, there are really two main styles of Bible translation. One is called um, dynamic equivalence, which is more of a thought-for-thought, thought. and one is, um, there are all kinds of different words, but I'm just going to call it a literal rendering, sure. which is more word-for-word. 
um, they both have their advantages because if you if you are more into a word for word translation, the challenge with that is that words actually change in meaning. That's so right. if you're slavish in translating the actual word, you could completely misconstrue the meaning, mm. uh, which is why I. I'm more of a fan of the dynamic equivalence. Those would be translations like the NIV, the New Living Translation, because they try to go for the the meaning. What what was the intended right. meaning to the original audience? And this this is the translation philosophy, by the way, that Wycliffe and all of the you know overseas translators use, uh, because you you know we know how different words are from one culture to another. Right. Right. Um, but they're both really good, and, and it's it's really good to use multiple translations. Right. But um, but a dynamic equivalence tends to speak more to the heart because it really emphasizes you know the exact meaning. They're they're both equally um, valid and accurate. If if you did a poll of the top Bible scholars, they would say they're both very accurate ways to translate the Bible. It just depends on the philosophy. That's super helpful. All right. So like in the minute or so we have left, I know that a bunch of young editors have joined sort of this veteran team to shape this third edition. How, how has that been? It's been wonderful. Uh, that one of the things we wanted to do is, is we wanted to uh, continue the relevance of the Life Application Study Bible. Um, we, it, it really spoke to the previous generation with 20 million copies sold, but we want to make sure that it continues to speak to this generation, generations beyond. So we needed younger millennial editors. We had three female millennial editors who are really challenging us to um, talk about critical issues, uh, issues like, um, you know, that, that were kind of taboo 30 years ago right, on, right. on uh, shame and abuse and mm. leaders and power and those kinds of things. And so you'll see a lot of that emphasis coming into the Life Application Bible. Uh, about 90% of all the notes were, were uh, edited in some way, and about a third of the Bible is brand new. Wow. No kidding. That is super fantastic. That is exciting for us, and we're excited for you. This has been Ron Beers, the general editor for the Life Application Bible 3rd Edition, which actually, friends, comes out today. So we can't recommend enough that you actually go get that, check it out, and uh, I'm sure that it's going to challenge and encourage a whole lot of people. Thank you for joining us today, Ron. All right. Thanks, Ian and Brian. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Coming up next, a homeless man starts a company, becomes rich, and hires only other homeless people. That's what's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. Quick, Brian, name this band. Modest Mouse. Woo! I'm so proud yes. of you. He did it. We're just nine months in. <laughs> We're making it happen. And All right, every once in a while. It, I'll get it wrong in month 10. I, I believe in you. Okay, Thank so sometimes we come across stories that just make you go, what? And this is one of those stories. Homeless man starts company, becomes rich, and hires only other homeless people. Here's how it starts. Uh, Drew Goodall lives comfortably today, easily taking in 250,000 pounds, which is made up money, by the way, um, <laughs> every year. It doesn't actually exist. No, it's like Monopoly. Uh, every year as a result of the success of his Sunshine Shoe Shine company. Say I'm that five times. never going to be able to say Sunshine that ever again. Sunshine Shoe Shine. Wow, that was way better than mine. Sunshine. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Sun's, uh, <laughs> Sunshine Shoe Shine. In your car. It got us both. Right. Away. Either way, that company, the SS Company, uh, which almost exclusively employs homeless people and those with special needs. But while it may seem that Drew lives an especially charmed life nowadays, he will never forget the time when he himself hit rock bottom. In his 20s, Drew was on the brink of a promising 
burgeoning career in film after securing roles in blockbusters such as Snatch and About a Boy, starring Hugh Grant. However, after this early success, the work began drying up under the pressure of cruel reviews, and Drew began to run out of money. He made the decision not to go back to his parents' home, as he felt that uh, if he did, he would be admitting that his dream was dead. Unfortunately, the result of this was that he uh, was that when he was evicted from his home, he had nowhere else to go and was forced onto the street for six months. Drew's mm-hmm. early experiences on the streets of London were brutal. He describes begging for food as a matter of desperate survival, sleeping in cardboard boxes, and the violence inflicted on him by drunks and other homeless mm-hmm. people. So this it's not just like, oh, a day or two on the streets. And six then he, months. Six months on the streets and now has launched a company helping other people who are in similar circumstances to his own. And I just think that I just think that's a, a beautiful story. It is. And it's so sad. Like, it, uh, the one hand, the beginning of the story is so tragic, right? He's like in movies that we've all seen. Right. And re- anytime you see people, uh, you know, bit, like small roles, but anytime you see somebody in these kind of bigger movies, you're like, oh, they've, they're living the dream, right? right. They're doing it. And so uh, he uh, lost it all. Uh, but then he starts this company. Uh, to offer a service that so often uh, Londoners who walk past him every day needed, he decided to start polishing shoes and offer the service to London's affluent business community. And this thing starts to grow. Uh, after six months, one of his regular customers suggested that Drew could set up his tiny shop in the lobby of his office. Uh, this proved, it says, to be a formative moment for Drew, and he began to make more and more money, enough to get him off the streets. And so it, it is kind of this riches to rags, then rags to riches story. Uh, that is uh, really uplifting, uh, but then he does something really cool with it. Let me read the rest of it. It says, Drew decided to expand his one-man operation into a real business, which, we, as we said, he calls Sunshine Shoeshine, which branched out in office places across the city of London, employing dozens of people, almost all of who have experienced homeless or who have special needs. Drew also donates a significant portion of his personal salary to charity, never forgetting the journey of hardship and deprivation he had to endure to get to where he is today. So just truly an inspiring story. story. Why is it so inspiring, do you think? Uh, I think um, the natural progression that we've probably heard often would be riches to rags, rags to riches, man lives high on all of his new fortune and doesn't. I think the the hot, the happiest part of the story is the and now I'm going to reach back down to where I was, yeah. where I know people are struggling, where I know I can empathize with what's going on, right. and now I'm going to do my part to pull them up as well. Yep. The natural story, the the human element to the story would be, uh, and he lives in a in a beautiful home. Uh, and lives happily ever after without much thought to where he came from. He put that behind him right. because that was the death. That was his pit of despair. Right. Instead, he's reaching back into what was the darkest moment of his life and saying, let me pull others out of that darkness, even out of personal cost to himself. I think that's what makes this truly inspiring. And, and th- I think there's a real Christian element to this, too, because like I think of Louis Dooley, who we've had on the show a couple of times, Louis Dooley. Uh, was previously incarcerated mm-hmm. and now spends all of his time like loving on and caring for people who are incarcerated. Yeah. There's like a a drive in him where you and I as pastors, like we know the scriptures, we know stuff that says, and when when were you in prison or when were you hungry? And yet when we look at our lives, I would imagine mm-hmm. I don't want to speak for you, we probably don't do nearly enough prison visits. No. Or enough like caring for hungry, starving 
marginalized, exploited people, even though mm -hmm. Jesus spends a lot of time talking about it. I feel like people who have experienced it firsthand, it's why so often recovering alcoholics are motivated to become sponsors. That's right. Because they've been at rock bottom. And I think in a kind of cosmic spiritual sense, this is a big part of why I think like in the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Yeah. I think part of what he's saying is blessed are those who really realize the weight of their sinfulness. You know, for you and I, we like grew up in churches and I like got baptized when I was eight. It's hard for me to really remember this like pre-Jesus Ian sometimes, even though I spent like the next like 10 years faking it. But mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like there, I don't have this, what a lot of people would call like a really cool story. So I think sometimes that can translate to just a lack of awareness of like the deep utter need is part of what makes me wonder like when Jesus says, it's actually really hard for rich people to enter the kingdom too yep. because they just always are secure or so they think. Yep. Like they, they never want for anything. But if you've been on the receiving end of something really dehumanizing or something really tragic, there is a sensitivity, there's an, an awareness that is kind of carved out in your heart for other people in a similar space where if you've never walked through that, it can be really hard, I think, to to connect at that level. And Absolutely. I think, it's, I think it's important. Like we all want to help uh, – you know, we all want to help homeless people. Like if, if I said to you uh, or any pastor or any person, like, do you do you wish you could do something to help homeless people? You'd be like, yeah, I want to help people. Uh, somebody who was homeless, who knows that pain, who right. can empathize and beyond empathize is like, I literally remember what it was like right. to be kicked exactly. by a drunk guy while I'm trying to sleep or exactly. to be disregarded all day long. Yes. That person is going to have a depth and a drive to help people in that same situation that I could never have. Right. Um, and, and, you know, talk about somebody who faced the, you know, uh, who has had cancer. And yeah, no longer has right. cancer. What are they going to be driven to do? Help right. people going through cancer. People, right. We see this all the time with people who've lost children. And they go, y y your mind sometimes like, why would you want to go back to that dark place mm. uh, and struggle with it? When in reality, there's probably something cathartic, but there's probably also something like, cause, because I know how dark that place is, right. I want to get into it to help others out of it. And to be a light that says, this isn't how it has to be. I, you can see that in this story. You can see there's something... Uh, beyond money and growing the business and stuff that's driving him. Well, and I think it's why it's so important that pastors learn to do a better job of connecting people with people rather than being the one-stop shop to everyone's problems. You know, mm -hmm. you know, the, like the temptation of the pastoral ego, you know, to be, you know, needed is, is yeah. very attractive. Absolutely. People are like, Oh, pastor, I, can you help me with this? And a lot of times pastors, even if they have no business delving into the depths of someone else's mm -hmm. thing, mm -hmm. they will like, make something up or they'll pretend that they have more answers than they do. And yeah. a lot of times I think we do our churches and people a disservice to, hmm. to not own the fact that like, you know what uh, I'm recognizing the way you're walking through is way beyond my pay grade, but I actually know this other family that went yes. through something very similar. Could I connect the two of you? That is one of the things that we bring to the table is we know these stories. And I think we do a huge disservice to not do a better job of connecting those dots. And obviously not every story is, you know, the same so sometimes you got to be careful like oh someone someone went through a very similar thing if it's not actually similar yep. that can be dangerous too but i just think this reminder that like man people we have depth carved out in our hearts based on our experiences and as pastors we have an opportunity i think to help connect some of those people a little more intently i think that's absolutely true and and so that's a great takeaway but also you know if you've been through some depth of struggle uh, god can use that uh, in order to change other people's lives who are going through that, that people like us would never be able to understand. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Well, coming up next, we got to do it. We're going to talk impeachment, and Brian and I are going to... Peaches? 
And we're gonna yeah, are you hungry? <laughs> we're gonna have peach cobbler on the show, and we're just gonna eat it for nine minutes straight. It's gonna be a really compelling radio. We're gonna be way out over our skis on this way. one, but uh, we invite you to join us. That's what's coming up next on the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope you're like. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, and we got to do it. We're going to talk impeachment a little bit. <laughs> Brian's rubbing his head <laughs> My nervously, like, why are we doing this? We just this? did this great story about the homeless guy starting a company for other homeless people. Yeah. I like those stories more. we got to do it, though. No, I'm, I'm with you. Unavoid- Even, like, putting this link in the rundown, I was like, Ugh. It's not like a fear of doing it. It's like a, Ugh. <laughs> Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I don't know the fear. Right. That certainly wouldn't describe it. But before we do, first off, Brian, he was the man in black. Any guesses who that might be? Wrong. It was Johnny Cash. (laughs) Now, you could win his 63-album Columbia Records Musical Library and relive his musical and faith journey. Just simply log on to 1160hope.com, keyword cash, to enter. Are you going to do that? Uh, Sure. All right. (laughs) I'm not sure that you and I are allowed to win, though, so. Oh. So that's... We should have discussed that before. If I'm not allowed to, then I probably won't do it, but I would encourage other people to do it because it's a great prize. What if you made a fake email address? Done. <laughs> You're supposed to deny that. You're not I supposed finally to. got the answer. Should have been who do I think the man in black is? Will Smith. Boom. Uh, man in black. <laughs> Took me a minute and a half, but I got it. You were working on that joke the whole yeah. time. Let's start this over. Ask I'm me really who the man proud of you. No, I like this is the raw behind the curtain. This is the this is the real mechanics in my mind. Of who good. would I've said? Who would I've said? <laughs> Done. I could see the look on your face, too. Yeah. I was like, he's not here right now. He's, nah. think, he's thinking. I <laughs> man in black, man in black, man in black. All right, so here's one of the Christian headlines. It says, how to think about impeachment, timely words from Chuck Colson. So Chuck Colson, I don't, did you grow up on Chuck Colson at all? Yeah, a little bit. And uh, and then also read that the book he wrote probably 10, 15 years ago about uh, that was almost like kind of major points of the faith that I thought was great. But well, yeah, how now shall we live? That right. kind of stuff. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. All right. Let me let me just read a little bit here because I think it's it seems like it could be good, balanced perspective. It says even before he was sworn into office, President Trump's political opponents were talking impeachment. Still nothing so far. Not pressure from the squad, not the Mueller report has been able to move House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in that direction. That may have changed in response to the revelation that President Trump asked the president of Ukraine to investigate Hunter Biden. Pelosi announced she was launching an impeachment inquiry. Though even after the release of partial transcripts of the call that was heralded as a smoking gun by some and nothing. Uh, a and, nothing burger. A nothing burger. Oh, that's right. I forgot about It's <laughs> like, am I reading that right? I'm yeah. going to start adding burger to everything. <laughs> to everything. And nothing burger by others. It's still not clear whether this inquiry will lead to an act, uh, to actual proceedings. Still, we're step beyond where we've been since the 1990s. Two sitting U.S. presidents, Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton, have been impeached. Richard Nixon resigned in order to avoid impeachment in 1998 and 99. Chuck Colson brought this uh, brought his up close, intimate and personal experience with Watergate to bear, along with his biblical worldview on the Clinton impeachment proceedings. Three of Chuck Colson's observations from those breakpoint commentaries are, I think this is the author saying, particularly helpful in clarifying for what we like are likely to face now and in the coming months. In one commentary, Chuck noted that many people didn't understand what impeachment is and how it works. 
That's just as true today. So here, these are Chuck Colson's words kind of explaining a little bit of what impeachment is. It says, if the House of Representatives passes an impeachment resolution this coming week, it does not mean the president is going to be turned out of office. It simply means that the House has made a finding that there is credible evidence. The Senate's job will be to decide how to dispose of the matter. Do nothing, plea bargain, censor, or conduct a trial. In their wisdom, our founding fathers designed a way we could bring a trial. Uh, the only man in America we cannot... So, hold on. Come on. Come again. Bring to trial. Bring to... Thank you. That's a very important word in that sentence. The only man in America who cannot be tried in the courts while he sits in office, the president of the United States. They intended no man to be above the law, a concept that reflects a major Christian contribution to the founding of our nation. The House action will not, I repeat, not, despite what the president's defenders claimed this week, overturn the election results. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to pause there. That's a lot of information. What do, you, what do you think so far? Yeah, it's a really helpful like uh, civics class there, right? Because yeah. uh, it, it gives you the wisdom of our Constitution that says, hey, uh, you can't take the president to court, but there he is also under the law. And so, you know, it's always I've always thought of it as or been told, you know, the House uh, brings the charges and the Senate does the does the trial like it's kind of the way it works. Uh, and rightfully so, the bar is really high yeah. for impeachment and it should be it should be. So he says in another commentary, Chuck noted a stark and important difference in how the Watergate investigation proceeded and what he was seeing in the Clinton impeachment. He said, nearly 25 years ago, I sat in the witness chair facing the House Judiciary Committee during the impeachment hearings of Richard Nixon. It was hardly a happy day for me because I was there to testify under oath about all the transgressions we now know of as Watergate. I left the hearing that night knowing I was going to prison, despondent because I knew that my friend President Nixon would soon be out of office, but in a sense... I had a renewed confidence in the American system. Why? Because the congressmen seemed genuinely concerned about upholding the law. Even the Republicans, mostly partisan defenders of Nixon, recognized that the integrity of the presidency was on the line and what was right had to take precedent over politics. Even though I was on the losing end, I was reassured that the American system was stronger than any man Mm. or partisan interest. So how does that apply today in your mind? I think that that is... uh, He goes on to say later that... Uh, that that it, when he was ta- commenting about the Clinton impeachment, he was saying that's not the, the what's going on now. And I would say it's much less what's going on now. Mm. Uh, man, do we live in just any time something like this comes up, you just are reminded of how partisan the culture is that we live in. Right. Yeah, right. Like Democrats are like, man, this is our chance to get rid of Donald Trump, not our chance to find the truth or to hold him accountable, whatever. It's true. It's Republicans are like we must do all we can to keep him there. Not we have to find out the truth. Not everybody. I'm painting with a broad brush, right, but right. but it's generally what you hear. And it's why people think uh, that the Democrats of the House are going to get this brought up and the Republicans of the Senate are going to get it shot down. And that's where we're heading. But you are just reminded of just the sliminess of, of our political <laughs> world. Right. Do I believe that President Trump probably did something wrong on that phone call? Doesn't surprise me if it happened. Hmm. Do I believe that possibly Joe Biden did something a little slimy with the Ukraine and his son wouldn't surprise me if it happened. And that's where it starts to sadden me. Like, you know, Colson here is saying at the Nixon time, there was some virtue in the congressman wanting to uphold the office of the presidency and wanting to get to the truth. And I don't feel like either side is trying to get to the truth right now. They're trying to play defense, right? They're trying right. to, uh, uh, they're trying to move forth an agenda. And that's why, I don't know, I might sound despondent about these types of things, but I think a lot of people are like me that I don't think that this is helpful at all one way or the other, because I don't think it's a fact finding mission. Uh, I think it's an agenda driven thing on both sides. And you you just want to be like, 
can the adults get in the room and like be like, okay, let's figure out what happened and make a uh, a principle driven decision, not a partisan driven decision. Okay, uh, but. I think we know that that's not what's going to happen one way or the other. Well, there's another story, and we'll we'll share both of these because they have, uh, I, I just think, a lot of helpful kind of nuts and bolts Good for background. someone that's looking for, like, okay, what's a one-page, two-page kind of context if you're just feeling a little underwater? But the second one, though, also offers two biblical imperatives, and I want to kind of read these to close because I think regardless of your politics or theology, they're they're actually pretty good. So one— we are called to pray for our leaders and respect their office, even if we do not respect the person. This principle applies to leaders of both parties across the political spectrum. If they are in public office, they are to receive our intercession, right? So that mm-hmm. that alone mm-hmm. is important. And I think we say it, maybe not enough. We need to pray for our leaders. Two, we are to speak truth in ways that glorify God and advance the common good. That's a little plug. <laughs> uh, this verse is a perpetual command from the Lord. This is from Ephesians 4. When you talk, do not say harmful things, but say what people need, words that will help others become stronger. Then what you say will do good to those who listen to you. Such speech, I think, will be a powerful witness in these polarizing days. So he's not Mm -hmm. saying just blindly pray for our leaders because they're in charge and who are we to say? But he's also saying, hey, be mindful of what you say. How we speak truth to power is as important as speaking truth to power. And sometimes it means harsh words. Jesus says harsh words, right? I mean, you reference whitewashed tombs all the time. But he also, like, he calls some of the religious elite dogs. Yep. That doesn't sound like – I yep. could see if Jesus had a Twitter account, people like, now, Jesus. Yep. Calm down. That's not very nice. Yeah. He's like, yeah, they don't deserve nice right now. They, yeah. they deserve true but hard. And I think this balance of, like, praying for leaders but also speaking truth to power and, like, what you're saying, let's go after the truth. After the truth. Not just about – keeping our boy in office or getting our guy out of office. Correct. And I think as Christ, as Christ followers, we need to, that needs to be our standard all the time. And, and too often it's not like we've kind of fallen into the partisanship ness of our culture, but I think we should be, the truth shouldn't scare us. Right. Yeah. And yeah. on either side, like let's get to what's true. Right. If you hate them, but there's nothing to get them out of office, well then get them not elected next time. If you right. love them, uh, but there's some shadiness there. Well, then trust the Constitution and go at it. Let's be men and women of truth and of principle more than the partisanship of our culture. All right. So why don't we take an exhale for this next segment? Then? OK, we made it. High five across the table. Boom. All right. Coming up next, Kentucky High School offers a new course called Adulting 101 to teach students life skills. I feel like I could use this course. Yes. 25 years ago. <laughs> We're going to talk about that and more coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm has given me an enthusiastic thumbs up. I did. Which I don't know that you've ever done that, but I just, are you full coach Brian right now? I was pointing to the liner that you need to read, and then I saw that you're already holding it, so I gave you the thumbs up, like, great job. Oh, you I'm not it. actually. So oh, thanks, well, for, thanks for I, saying I something. I take away the thumbs oh, up, well, that's go back that's, to the point. Now that's hurtful. <laughs> All right, which one shall I read right now? Here we go. Rooted 2019 Conference is taking place in Chicago on October 3rd through 5th at Park Community Churches near North Campus. Do you know those Park Community people, by the way? Uh, a little bit. I They're know people awesome. who have been there, and I've never heard a bad thing about that They're church. They're so awesome. Visit oh. rootedministry.com for tickets to this conference. For anyone involved in the discipleship of teens, whether you're a youth pastor, volunteer, or parent, Rooted 19 speakers include Elise Fitzpatrick, Christopher Ewan, Jen Michael, Watson Jones III, Brian Dye, uh, Jessica Thompson and many more join us for two full days of great preaching biblical teaching practical workshops and sincere worship get your tickets today at rootedministry.com and use the password 1160 for 
a discount. I t- by the way, I told nice. I told somebody the joke the other day that you and I did about naming our, our kid and many more so that all of these and yes. many more. <laughs> and I just I think I explained it poorly because they did not find it as funny as like I found it when you came up with that. I laughed so hard last week about I, like I don't think it would actually be that funny. Oh, it was great. Oh, all right, well, I'll and take many it. more. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a racket, right? That's. And here comes, I thought there were many more. Well, this is many more right here. <laughs> this guy's getting booked everywhere, man. I see him on every marquee across yep, the it's U.S. It's still funny. It's still funny. <laughs> At least for the two of us. There's a guy out there right now, I'm like, my name is Mandy Moore. Like, you know. <laughs> oh, Mandy Moore. That's pretty close. Know, it's close. Yeah, think about that. My goodness. All right. So every once in a while, for no other reason than we just want to do a feel-good story. Yep. And I, you know, it's funny because the, uh, like the UT story about the kid that made the t-shirt, um, I had a bunch of people tell me, like, oh, I just found that story to be so inspiring. In fact, that motivated me to do something oh, that's cool. in my job or at my school that I was, you know, putting on the back burner. So hopefully these stories are encouraging. This one's not necessarily, like, inspiring, but it is sort of just lighthearted. It says, Kentucky High School offers a new course called Adulting 101. What's going on here? <laughs> it's so funny because I could have used this course so much. <laughs> I mean, all of us. Could. Fern Creek High School is making sure its students are prepared for the real world with a new class called Adulting 101. According to WLKY, the three-day course is for seniors and was created by the school's college access resource teacher. We're preparing students for life after high school, uh, she said. Yesterday was all about money. Today it's home and health. And tomorrow it's about being a professional. The students also learned about car maintenance, washing clothes, and cooking food. Uh, she said it's important for students to have these life skills. I learned a lot about how to do my laundry. I mean, I kind of knew some aspects of it, but I never <laughs> sorted my clothes or anything like that, student Lily Farmer said. Adulting 101 has been such a hit that the school is planning to bring it back next year. There are so many good things and disturbing things about this, but I feel like uh, I could have really used this. I've told you this story before. Uh, I, my best friend, when we were in high school, we were in, uh, you know, one of those classes that we never use now that we're older and uh, probably math or something. And, uh, and, uh, he was doing very poorly in it. And so he could either stay in the class and get a terrible grade, or he was within the window where he could drop out of the class. Okay. And he filled that class with auto mechanics class. Oh. And we joke to this day that he learned stuff in that class that he still uses all the time. And I sat in a class that I learned no, like nothing that's now in my life right, now. Right. And now I'm the one who needs to like call some help if I need to change uh-huh. a tire or something, totally. right? And, and so but this, you can change your tire. I though. can. Okay. I can change my tire. Uh, but that's that's pretty close to the ceiling of what I can do on my on right. my car. Uh, and so I love this class that they're doing this, but there is something to be said about parenting in here too. Like the person who, uh, and I'm, this is more me not pointing a finger, but four of them coming back at me, right? Yeah, right. Like, you know, parents, maybe, maybe teach your kid to do their laundry before they go to college might be helpful here. Yeah, but some of these though, maybe the parent just doesn't know anything about them. Maybe the parent yep. isn't good with money or they don't know how to work. In oh no, car. I think I this think... as a concept is fabulous. Yeah. This is great. When I, so when I was in junior high, uh, I was homeschooled already, but I went to the junior high and high school for a couple of classes, stuff that I couldn't yep. do at home. And I know it was previously called home ec. When I was yes. in junior high, it was called life management. Oh. But like the stuff that I learned, like I learned how to sew a mini football out of felt. I sewed a mini football <laughs> out of felt in home ec class. Why was that the project? That was I because you could pick a couple different things uh, and like the boys are like I choose the football. <laughs> oh, I don't think we had a choice. I actually did like ten of them and made them as gifts. <laughs> like I just put people's initials on them. I made That's so many. Awesome! <laughs> I made a football in junior high home ec class. That's so that weird. Awesome! Did you make uh, pizza bagels as well? Was that another part of it? 
So we had sewing was like an entire we called the marking periods, but a semester. Okay, and cooking was another one, and like oh. woodwork was another one. Oh. And so I believe you know I remember I remember learning how to make scrambled eggs. Yeah, and, and being like oh, I can make scrambled eggs, and I remember part of that class being like. You one up to like part of that class was this was junior high. You had to make dinner for your family, yeah. and so your mom had or your dad had to sign off on it. Right, and I remember it being such a big deal that I made spaghetti and meatballs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I wasn't planning to go this direction actually, yep. but it, it made me think of something. I think there's a church application to this. Like it's one of the things that we've sort of at least anecdotally kind of railed on the last eight or nine months we've had this yep. show. We're like, oh gosh, there's all sorts of stuff we learned that isn't useful isn't mm. practical but then that you know the things that are like really boots on the ground practical i would have loved to learn how to work on my car or yep. been better with money earlier are there ways that we do that as the church where we actually like we're giving people calculus lectures but hmm. but people listening are like i don't know how to actually live this out in my life like i imagine if i was to like the marathon's coming up right so let's say yep. eight months ago I, I went somewhere and said, hey, I, I want to run the Chicago Marathon. I said, that's awesome. We're so excited that you've made this decision. Uh, come with me. We're going to lead you to a big auditorium, and we're going we're gonna to sing a bunch of songs about marathons, <laughs> right? I the band's really here. good, and the guy's going to give a lecture about the importance of running marathons and about physical fitness. And, um, and then when that's done, we'll, we'll see you next weekend. And I'm like, I could do that for nine months and be nowhere closer yeah. to actually running a marathon than when I started – don't we sometimes run the risk of doing that with churches where we just talk about things and yep. people are wondering, yeah, but how do I actually live this out in my marriage or mm-hmm. at my job or in my neighborhood? Like, do you feel like there's some application to a, a, a disconnect of like practical tools and resources for Christ followers who are like, yeah, I agree with this intellectual concept. I don't know how to actually do that in my I, life. I think it's, it is absolutely true. And it's why oftentimes painting again with a broad brush in churches, we see, uh, you know, someone's been in our congregation for five years and they kind of look the same, right? They kind of mm-hmm. act the same. Well, that's not their fault as much. It could be partially their fault, but it causes the church to look in the mirror and be like, what are we missing here? And I think you're getting ahead on it right there. Like, how do we, um, how are, how are we giving people practical tools to live their Monday through Saturday as right. opposed to like, come here, I'm going to talk for a while, which is important. Totally important. Singing together, which is important. Absolutely important. Um, but but where are we giving them the tools to say, okay, now I know how to read my Bible. Now I right. need to know how to engage my right. neighbor. Uh, like I know at our church, we do a lot of one-off stuff that helps with that. But what's in the daily week-to-week, month-to-month rhythm as a church hmm. that says if somebody – I always like to think in terms of this. If Ian comes to my church, yeah. right, and you go, you know what? I'm going to invest in everything you're doing. Like it's not – you know, sometimes as pastors, we're like, well, if they just gave us more time or if they just <laughs> – right. all right, I'm going to be here every Sunday. Right. I'm going to get in a small group. I'm going to be this. What would the result be in your life? And I think that's the hard way to ask mm. the question. Like, would they actually be growing? Would they actually be right. having these tools that you think about? I think those are the hard questions to ask. They are hard questions to ask. And, and if we're continuing this school metaphor, if a church realized the way this school has, like, oh, man, we need to give them more practical tools. What they're not doing is having the chemistry teacher come in and teach an auto mechanics class. Mm. The problem, I think, sometimes in church environments is – the guy who's delivering the message, he's like, oh, but this is the thing I do. I actually don't know how to instruct you in here. I don't know how to give you the tools there. Sometimes it's like so sermon-centric or mm-hmm. one-pastor-centric that the church ends up looking just like the sum of that person's abilities 
or experience or intellect as opposed to like a wide breadth of, oh, yeah, well, okay, we'll have so-and-so come in who's an expert in this yeah. to train our leaders how to be better at that. Like that, I think, is sometimes really difficult to do, especially if, and we talked about this earlier, some of the ego that can kind of work its way yeah. into pastoral ministry. And I don't, you know, I don't know that we always do a good job of kind of unpacking that. Yeah, it's ego. And it's also just you get in a rut, right? Like, what do I have to do this week? I got to write a sermon. All I got to right. meet with these people. I got to meet with the staff. Then next Sunday comes. All right, we finished that one. Now what do I got to do? Right. So sometimes it's just a matter of getting outside yourself and being like, okay, let's think about this as a bigger picture. Totally. What's happening to our people? And you could go years without really giving that right. thought because there's a lot of day-to-day. You get what's the, It's hard to see the forest from the trees. Uh-huh. You're just in the midst of it all. And that can be equally as dangerous. It's just one more case for rest and Sabbath and regular yeah. rhythms of stepping back because otherwise it's really, really hard to see that stuff. Yeah. All right, coming up next, a difficult story. It says, in disability, I'm finding wholeness without healing. Here's the subtitle. When people pray for my healing, they are at least partly praying for me to be normal again. Mm. We're going to unpack that story a little bit. Coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, and John is yelling in our ears right now. I don't know... What changed in the booth just now? <laughs> I just saw Brian like take his headphones off. That I'm bleeding now through the ears. If things get a little wonky here, it's from the lack of blood to our brain. It's coming out of your things head. It's going to get really, really wonky. Is it weird that I actually, in my head, predicted that was going to be like our rejoin music? Oh, like you've got, you. maybe you're now subconsciously able. No, like you've it's got supposed the, to be random, isn't it? Is it, or is it just in a loop in which they come? I don't know. I think it's supposed to be, John, is it properly random? I think the the way the system's set up is that there, there is a randomness to it, oh. but I think every now and again the same three cards repeat. Well, that's a non-answer. Right. There's I, a randomness to it that is completely regular. <laughs> <It's not> completely, <laughs> there's, there's, I, th- I think there's 25 different songs we have in that cart. And every now and again, it just kind of repeats the cycle. Either way, my inner brain was like, I think I know what song's next. But I have no way of proving that, so that was useless for me to say on the air. (laughs) Uh, Before we dive into this next story, the 222 Foundation provides seminary students training, scholarship, and spiritual nourishment, and would like to extend a special invitation to AM 1160 listeners, specifically Common Good listeners, to attend a limited-access fundraising concert with Keith and Kristen Getty on Friday, October 4th at the Bridge Church in Barrington, Illinois. Just simply visit 222foundation.org for a link to reserve tickets and to use the access code WYLL to reserve your complimentary seats. You know what that means, Brian? Free. It's free. Free. Seating is limited, though, so remember the access code WYLL to reserve your seat to see Keith and Kristen Getty with the 222 Foundation today. So every once in a while... We'll come across a story that's actually very much a story. It's yep. not a, uh, like, all right, here are the facts, here are the details. It's like a long-form prose, mm. which I realize is sometimes tricky in a radio format. Yeah. But every once in a while, like, the narrative-style story is just so compelling. And for me, it sort of, like, stands against the flow of the, like, information whiplash that we often have, just jumping from thing to thing to thing, you know, tweet to stat, yep. headline. Yep. So this story in particular, I think, is is pretty fascinating and the headline says in disability i'm finding wholeness without healing when people pray for my healing they are at least praying partly for me to be normal again what's going on here it's hard because this is written by if i'm reading the name correctly haley joy uh scandrit and uh writing at medium.com uh this is hard because you would think that somebody uh who is struggling with a disability of some sort and you know uh 
small group comes around them, friends come around them, elders and pastor come around them and and pray for their healing, uh, that that would be embraced. And she's not saying that it's not. Right. But she's saying that subconsciously you're saying I'm not okay, uh, and that uh, you're praying for me to be made normal. And that as long as I'm not, uh, you know, as long as God doesn't choose to do that, uh, then I'm a lesser of a person. And that her words coming from somebody uh, who who um, who has felt this, uh, her words are really deep. They're really hard to hear because you're like, okay, no, I've prayed this prayer for people before, right? And she's not necessarily saying don't pray that prayer, right? Uh, but she's saying understand what's going on, what what somebody like her hears uh, in that prayer, and and I think it's important for us to hear that. Yeah, it, it begins pretty beautifully. She says, as a child, I believed deeply in the power of prayer. Lying in bed at night, I would pray for everyone I knew, anxious to include every last person so that God would forget to keep them safe. I believe my prayers made a difference in that if I just prayed hard enough, I could make good things happen and make bad things go away. I believe that my prayers and good behavior would be rewarded with a good life. This was an incredibly simplistic and childlike theology, which gave my child self a comforting illusion of control. That is a power-packed first paragraph. Yes, it is. She says, as my as I grew up, though, my prayers about uh, my ideas about prayer shifted. I saw that the wrongs of the world continued despite my prayers to right them. Like many adults around me, I grew to believe that while God knew the plan, I couldn't fathom it. So I focused my prayers on asking for the wisdom, strength, and faith to be a good person, even in difficult and seemingly unfair circumstances. Although the inequalities of the world weighed on my heart and raised some difficult questions on some level, I still believe that being a good person brought the simple rewards of a good life. Hmm. When I was 22, however... After years of low energy and months of increasing unexplained pain, I was uh, diagnosed with fibromyalgia and myalgic endo oh, I can't even say it, encephalomyelitis. Something like that, yeah. Two chronic illnesses, which for me are disabling. I dropped down to part-time enrolling, enrollment at college. I stopped being able to commute to school by myself. I stopped being able to cook food or do laundry while staying on top of my studies. I spent most of my time alone in bed in pain. The questions I'd been holding about Faith and prayer in God throughout college were suddenly more pressing as physical and emotional pain became uh, central parts of my everyday life. Other people began to treat me differently. Some stopped inviting me to hang out. Some offered a barrage of unsolicited advice. People prayed aloud at family gatherings for my healing without asking how I felt about it. One mm-hmm. friend assured me whenever they saw me that they knew I would be healed because they had prayed for it, but never asked how to actually support me. And that, to me, is like the anchor of the entire article. Yes. Is is how so often with, I think, the best of intentions, Christian people in particular can say and do things without even really stopping to ask how it's affecting the people that we're pointing them towards. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, I'm guessing if she were here, she would say, of course I want to be healed. Please pray for my healing. Yeah, But don't just stop there. Like, as I'm not healed, as I'm still struggling, uh, how are you going to love me? And then she goes on to talk uh, about the uh, the importance of inclusion. She says, maybe the best step we can take toward true wholeness as both individuals uh, and in our communities lies in embracing true inclusion. Mm. Uh, and I've heard this from people who struggle with disabilities or chronic illnesses, kind of made to feel outside the community, like kind of uh, you're pitied more than you're included right, and right. kind of having that feel of never really being a part of um, and so you're, you're the person to be prayed for. You're the person to be helped. And those are important things. Uh, but this concept of inclusion, I think, is, uh, is a really uh, interesting one, especially for those of us who don't have these types of issues in our lives. And to, to kind of go, okay, 
this helps frame my mindset better on how to interact with people that I love, yes. uh, but who may be struggling in these types of ways. Yes, she says, even in denominations with less emphasis on miracles, prayers for healing are still common, as is the belief that God intervenes in some way when we pray. They're not grew up in a charismatic or Pentecostal culture, but praying for sick people to get better was a reflexive norm. When I became chronically ill, I found myself on the receiving end of these prayers over and over, and I learned how isolating and heavy they could feel. For a long time, it was hard for me to not feel like I was disappointing people when I didn't improve. Hmm. It felt like I couldn't give people a version of me that confirmed their worldview, like my reality made them uncomfortable and like they were longing for the whole non-disabled me to come back. Hmm. And I never really even thought about that, that the weird like psychological hurdle that she's having to deal with, it sounds like constantly, is that her lack of healing, at least as people saw it, was somehow a disappointment to them. Yeah. So it's not oh, only her having to come to terms with her own illness, but also the looks of disappointment on other people's faces when a change, at least physically, didn't happen for her. And I think that's a she's writing about it very poetically and very honestly, mm. but it's a it's an aspect of that exchange that I've never really considered before. So basically she's saying, uh, you pray for my healing and then when I'm not healed uh, kind of in a real subtle way, I feel like I've let you down. That's right. That's a really interesting thing that I've never thought about. Like that's sometimes we read articles here that I'm like, oh, that's I need to give this some more thought. This is an important one. How do we talk uh, not just about but to uh, people who who struggle with disability and illness and how are they made to feel not feel included, but be included. That's right. And uh, But at the same time, how do we include them and pray for their healing? And there's a lot here. This is this is a good one. Well, she, she ends with uh, some practical thoughts. You read the sentence before. Maybe the best step we can take towards true wholeness as both individuals and our communities lies in embracing true collu- inclusion. She says uh, after this, ask the sick and disabled people in your life what their needs are, how you can help support them, and what makes them feel loved and cared for. Some might say they want you to pray for their healing. Some might not. You can choose to honor and love your disabled and chronically old friends by respecting their boundaries and wishes. Cultivating loving inclusion and accessibility in relationships and in communities always starts with listening to those closest to the pain and taking your cues from them. I honestly don't know what I believe about prayer or even the concept of God right now, but I do believe in love as both a goal and as a life force. And love is bigger than our cultural discomforts and the exclusion they cause. Which that idea of taking cues from the people closest to the pain, I just think is a really, really good challenge. One that I know that I have a lot of room to improve in and I want to keep getting better at. Absolutely. I think this is a great one. Read it online at our Facebook page. uh, And I think this will shape how a lot of us interact with people that we love, that we want to interact with well. And uh, yeah, go ahead and read that. Coming up next, we're going to take a hard right turn. It usually always feels like a hard right turn at this part of the show. It's time for some interweb insanity, stories we have not seen, sound effects we have not heard. That's how we're going to land the plane here on The Common Good on AM1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. That music can only mean one thing. What's that one thing, that Brian? That one thing is interweb insanity. You almost forgot again. I did. <laughs> I always just want to say internet insanity. In fact, I did it in yesterday's show. I think it's okay back. that you call that. I don't know there's any like official ruling on You've this. You've kind of made it the official, like, that's what we talk. But that's I'm not, what we talk. I'm not a notary or anything. I haven't. <laughs> it's, not, it's not legally binding. <laughs> 
I'm going to try to use that phrase at any point today. Not a notary or anything. You should use it like as a weird comeback. My kids are going to ask me a question. I'm going to go, not a notary or anything. Like, what does if we can get ice cream or not have to do with that at all? I don't it's get it. It's going to be just my line for everything. I like now. that. I like that. Please hey, let me Pastor, know. do you know how to do this? I'm not a notary or anything. <laughs> Please do it, and then tell me tomorrow in what circumstances. I'm going to use that line somewhere today. <laughs> what a weird, weird challenge uh, to give yourself. But what if it was actually a question where it required me to be a notary? And I'm like, I'm oh, not that'd a be really. I would. I'd be tickled pink. Uh, so the way this works is uh, our producers, both PJ and Keith Conrad, they have given us. He hates story, that nickname. By the way. I know, I know. <laughs> stories from the. And he's laughing at us right now. Stories from the internet, just crazy stories. We've not read these. We're reading them sight unseen. Yeah. So, as we like to say, if you're insulted, we're insulted with you. So that's right. Here we go. Ian will go first. You want me to kick you off? I do. Kick you off. Kick what us a, off. Sure. <laughs> Canada uh, drunk raccoons spotted stumbling around in Canadian neighborhood. Seemingly drunk raccoons. Sounds like Canada to me. <laughs> America's landlord. Uh, seemingly drunk raccoons have been stumbling through a Canadian neighborhood in recent days, and the reason may surprise you. Residents of Stittsville, a suburb of Ottawa, Ontario, have spotted the raccoons. <laughs> I'm going to keep saying raccoons. Raccoons, that's funny. Which are nocturnal creatures, not acting like their usual selves. Quote, he couldn't really move, one resident, Emily Rogers, told CBC News of a raccoon <laughs> she saw on <laughs> September 2nd. He was dragging his legs. He was wobbling, having a hard time standing up. You could tell something was wrong with him for sure. The day before, another resident, Julie Fong, said a local officer requested permission to enter her backyard as there have been uh, concern about a raccoon in the area that seemed drunk. So that's why this guy was kind of sleeping it off under our deck. <laughs> there was a drunk raccoon under our deck, Fong said, adding her husband saw the creature earlier that day. He said it was sort of stumbling along, just looking completely off like somebody who may have had a few extra libations would be walking. My I just wonder if people turn on their radio at the exact wrong time. They're like, what? what? They I thought this was Christian talk. Turns so, out, by the way, they were drunk on crab apples. Yes, it's fermented okay. fruit. So, <laughs> Wisconsin, uh, America's uh, cheese grater. Python wow. found after nearly a week on the loose in a Wisconsin school. A, a python that escaped from its terrarium inside a high school classroom was nope. located nope. about a week later with help from ex- ex- reptile experts Blech. and thermal imaging. Officials at Fond du Lac High School said the snake is the pet of the science teacher who's been ringing, bringing the reptile to school for oh, years. No. He escaped from his cage during Labor Day weekend just before the first day of school, setting off a week-long search for the non-venomous snake. Snakes. Yeah, Why that, did it have to be snakes? Of course it had to be that one. Yeah. I like that they included non-venomous, so nothing to worry nothing about. To worry about. It's it still will, a python. Jeez, Louise. It will eat you. <laughs> California, America's... No, Beach show. party. Yeah. Boat falls off trailer. Owner abandons ship. <laughs> An 18-foot-long boat fell off a trailer on, I don't even know what that is, what street, northeast of North Harbor Drive on Tuesday. Police came across the grounded vessel just before noon. It blocked the uh, the leftmost lane of eastbound, blah, 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 blah. Who cares? San Diego police said the steel fishing boat was deemed a traffic hazard. While no crime was committed, a tow or impound fee may be sent to the boat's owner, police said. I'll never let go. 
That was pretty funny. Do you think he saw it and was like, just let it, leave it, leave it, we don't need it. It went off, he's like, I don't know how to put that back on, it's traffic all around. Can you imagine being such a baller that you don't even turn around for your boat? He's like, like, I'll get get another one, (laughs) just one of many. You get home and your wife's like, why are we buying another boat? Ah, It's in the middle of the (laughs) You can go get it if you want. Uh, New York, America's Apple. Uh, You're being very practical. Texas (laughs) man attacks the Wall Street bull with a banjo. (laughs) That's new video shows the moment a Texas truck driver oh, attacked no. the charging bull statue in this financial district with a beefed up banjo. Beefed uh, up, that's good. Yeah, the he uh, can be heard calling the iconic bronze bull the devil as he hacks away at the statue <laughs> with each impact sending a loud uh, percussive clang. It was an odd sight, hmm. even one for the tour- tourism industry worker uh, who said he had spent a decade in the area. Uh, and so it goes on and on. But this guy was just hitting the bull with a banjo. Hit him with a banjo. <laughs> a banjo, man? What? I'm helping. <laughs> Where is he going to get a banjo? <laughs> I don't know. But I saw a guy get hit with a banjo once, and he went down. That was oddly specific. Yeah, it was pretty on the nose. I, uh, I'm i not going to read it, but I personally love to see you squirm a little bit when you're reading <laughs> paragraphs that are completely inappropriate. Yep. And you're like, I hey, uh, um, well, can't, can't read that. And uh, let's get out of the segment. Okay, <laughs> last but not least, Sweden, scientists suggest eating human flesh to fight climate change. Do your part. <sighs> do your part. <laughs> That's the message today on The Common Good. Do your part. Uh, Brian, do you know that every fight is a food fight if you're a cannibal? Okay. A Swedish scientist speaking at Stockholm Summit uh, last week offered an unusual possible tactic in combating local climate, uh, global climate change, eating human flesh. Stockholm School of Economics professor and researcher Magnus Soderlund. That sounds like the name of somebody who would recommend this. Who would eat flesh. Yes. Right. Reportedly <laughs> said he believes eating human meat derived from dead bodies might be able to help save the human race if only a world society were, quote, awakened to the idea. You gotta tell him, silent breed is people! <laughs> Oh my god! What a weird note for us to end That's on. That's a weird one. Oh, it was a dark show, so we're going to end with cannibalism. Louise. <laughs> well, we hope your day uh, turns brighter after this. Uh, we're glad that you joined us today. What do they uh, give the cannibal that showed up late to the dinner party? Go ahead. They gave him the cold shoulder. <laughs> and on that, for your tickets, <laughs> I'm Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Woo! Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.